Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. I'm back. Yeah, Rachel was gone. I was out of town. And then we were going to record yesterday, but her flight was delayed. So that's why the episode is coming to you a little late. Yeah. So apologies. (laughs) We're (laughs) very sorry. But we'll have an episode up on Friday as well. So two in a row. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you guys would like to become patrons of Hollywood Crime Scene, you can go donate over on patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Mo, Dana, Stephanie, Latabi, Laura, Kate, Anne, Georgia, Jenna, Justine, Emma, Gina Marie, Jerry, Heather, Allison, Grace, Hannah, Mandy, Joanne, Donna, Brina, Michaela, Amy, Frazier, Reese, Bodie, Sandra, Brianna, Justin, uh, my cousin, Karen. What up, Karen? (laughs) Uh, Rebecca, Jasmine, Brooke, and that's it. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, guys. And like Rachel said, go to the Patreon if you want to become a patron. And there are like 80 plus episodes of bonus content that has never been released. So you can, if you're caught up on the shows, you'll have a whole stash of new shit to listen to. Yeah, I mean, shit in the best possible way. (laughs) (laughs) This is a case that has been suggested a few times. And then when I saw that the anniversary of um, the murder was coming up June 22nd, I thought, what better time to do it? That is the anniversary of maybe not so famous of a murder, but with a very famous connection. And that is the murder of Jean Elroy, who is the mother of one of the best modern crime writers probably out there, James Elroy. Um, You probably know him best as the writer of L.A. Confidential, which is also an amazing movie. If you like that old school style of crime writers, like a Raymond Chandler, like the hard-boiled kind of language, he really... He really does that style of writing. Um, so you'll probably like him if you haven't read any of his work yet. He also wrote a memoir about his mom's murder, which is pretty much what I used as a source when writing up this uh, episode. It's called My Dark Places. And if you need a dark summer read <laughs> to enjoy on the beach, I recommend it. Yeah, it's very good. It's um, it's like part true crime novel and part memoir like yeah. it's a combination so uh it's definitely worth a read it's it's a very fast read so let's just get into it so james elroy was born in los angeles in 1948 to genevieve hilliker and armand elroy his mom was a nurse and his dad was an accountant who was one of rita hayworth's business managers at some point now Elroy describes both of his parents as having kind of a dramatic flair. For instance, his father even claimed to have had an affair with Rita Hayworth, which it's like maybe, you know, a little bit much. (laughs) And his mom, like her big story was that she was there when John Dillinger was gunned down. Wow. So they kind of, I mean, it's not surprising that someone who would become a writer one day kind of has dramatic parents, right? So these two people were quite volatile together Uh, So to say their marriage was a disaster is an understatement. They were married from 1939 and to 1954. They got divorced under the the typical irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences. Yeah. Um, But they were both kind of hoes, like according to James. Uh, The mom also loved to drink as well. Did he call his mom a hoe? Oh, I'm going to get into it, Rachel. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, I mean, I have a soft spot for her because she's a red haired drinking slut. Yeah. We love those on the <laughs> I show. I mean, come on. So James claims uh, that he did find his mom a lot in bed with men and that he kind of gives his dad a pass because his dad was more discreet about his affairs. Um, he was very close to his father. And honestly, 
I do find this distinction to be a little sexist in my mind. Oh, well, what is it? Don't you think? Well, well, like the fact that the mom was like a bad person because she was sleeping around, but the dad, like the dad got more of a pass for sleeping around. And he does claim that he is uh, a sexist pig a lot. Like in the book, throughout the book, he kind of comes to these revelations that he did treat his mom unfairly. Um, he claims that his mom had a hot temper as well. And the, the hilarious complaint, like his most hilarious complaint to me was that she would send him to church on Sundays so she could nurse her hangover from carousing on like Saturday night. So he would go by himself. <laughs> I guess she would drop him off at church and go home and, and, and whatever, take a nap. Right. And then go pick him up. So it's like, you can kind of see like she was not the fun parent. I, I mean, according to him and I'll get more into that. So the parents did have joint custody of James. The mom had him during the week and the dad had him on weekends. James claims that his dad initially lived close and that he would see him outside smoking at night, keeping surveillance on his son and his ex-wife. Now, James thought this was like a sign of love, but to me, this seems really fucking creepy. Yeah. So you can see how his perception of things is not like the best judge. Like he's not like a great POV to be basing what was happening in this marriage and the post-marriage time. I think he was very like one-sided in his perception. Um, in early 1958, Jean decided that her and her son needed to leave the divorced single mom apartment complex that they lived in on the west side of L.A. Was it branded, this is the divorced single mom no, complex? No, but we all know what that is, right? I know what the divorced single dad <laughs> complex is. I, I think there's I a few divorce type like apartment I complexes. didn't know there was one for mom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess when the mom didn't get a house in the divorce... She also had to go to an apartment and she was a, she worked like she was a nurse. So she took care of herself after the divorce. I don't think she got money from her husband. Yeah. Um, she might've even earned, been like the, the bigger breadwinner because okay. she was actually like a registered nurse and had like a great job. So, um, so they were going to uh, leave Santa Monica and move to Al Monte, which is just east of downtown LA off the 10. It's probably like without traffic, like a 40 minute drive from yeah. the West side. Um, she claimed that they could get a house there, which was better than the apartment situation. And, uh, James describes it as being a big lie. Like he thought his mom was a liar. The dad also thought the mom was lying about why they were moving to El Monte. No one understood why she would leave the West side, which is like most people consider it to be a nicer area because it's by the beach and the weather is cooler. Whereas if you go inland, it's hotter. And it's like definitely more of a suburban tract home. Do you know what I mean? Like not as nice of an area, I guess. Uh, but it was also like a larger commute for her at that point because she worked on the West Side. So she'd be re- sort of commuting from El Monte instead of just living while, while, um, by where she worked. Um, they basically thought that like according to Armand, the, the father, he basically thought she was doing it either running away from a guy on the West side or running to someone in El Monte. Uh, but he had no proof. He did hire private detectives, by the way, to track this woman. So this guy was a big fan of stalking her. Yeah. I mean, and James romanticizes it like in his, in, in these chapters that are on this uh, period. He couldn't take his eyes off her. Well, it was more like to protect him. Like, oh. I'm doing this to protect you. And James bought it. Like, he's right. like, oh, she... Basically, he, he thinks that it was, like, the dad trying to find her fucking other men so he could get full custody. Like, yeah. that kind of shit. By the way, Armand described Almonte as Schittsville, USA. Well, that's not very nice. <laughs> that's not very nice. Don't at me, Almonte people. That's not my description. So, as I mentioned, every weekend, he would spend this with his dad. And it was quite a trip to do so. He would take a cab and then three bus rides to get to his father, who was now living in Hollywood. And then when he turned 10, his mom actually asked him who he wanted to live with. James said his dad. And he claims that his mom became furious and slapped him. He kind of considered it like a a trick. Like she was trying to, like, get him. And then he fucked her over by saying his dad. I don't really know... Uh, why that would be something she would do. <laughs> like, aha! <Right. laughs> like, I knew you liked your dad more. Um, he, he claims that when she slapped him, he called her a drunk and a whore. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, James is clearly a pawn in his parents' games against each yeah. other. Gene complained about um, the hold Armand had over James. He regularly called Gene a tramp. Like, he wow. badmouthed uh, he, he badmouthed Gene to his son regularly, like 
He was always saying she was a drunk, she's a lush, she's a whore, she's a tramp. And Jean was basically called him a pussy. Like she also, you know, she's not innocent in this. So he's caught in between. He's definitely caught in between like a really bad divorce situation, I think, for a kid. And how old is he at 10 at this point? Yeah, now he's about nine. I think he'll turn 10 soon. Uh, James had a complicated relationship with his mom. Obviously, he admits in the book that he felt like he had to hate her to prove his love to his dad. He tells a story in the book um, where his mom cared for him while he got an ear infection. They had taken a trip to Mexico and he went in the pool and got some weird ear infection. Yeah. And as I mentioned, she was a nurse. So she like really took care of him and got his ear like healed. And he, she basically won his heart during that period. And he says that he didn't even feel like he could tell his dad because he didn't want to praise his mom to his dad in any way. Yeah. So they're, the, his parents are playing psychological mind games right. on him, whether they're doing it consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, and I feel like the dad is definitely probably doing it a little more. And maybe he was able to use the sexism of the day right. to kind of make it seem like what she was doing was even worse. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So he... Also had some Oedipal stuff going on with the mom during this period. In the book, he talks about how he hated her and he lusted for her. You kind of get the impression by stories in the book that the mom was a hard ass in like a good way. And the typical divorced dad was the fun one. Do you know what I mean? Like, So she definitely, I think, had a tougher exterior. But I feel like maybe it was because she felt like she had to because the dad was like, come over, we'll eat fucking cheese whiz. Yeah. And like, he definitely had that vibe where it's like, anything goes. Like, it was the fun house on the weekend. Yeah, and she had to like, do the mom things and raise him. Right. So, you know, he's spending the weekends with his dad who's bad-mouthing his mom as a whore, telling his son to spy on his mom as well so he could prove that she was unfit and that he could get custody. There's a story where James was... um scared to get the polio vaccine and the mom basically she's a nurse she held him down and gave him the vaccine at home yeah. <laughs> so she's definitely like the hard ass and like the original anti anti-vaxxer like she's like you're getting the fucking polio vaccine and was the dad like an anti-vaxxer was he like no but it was just more to show you like she was like you know what you're getting your fucking shot like she was like no holds barred the fucking parent like yeah for sure now on June 20th 1958 James goes to visit his dad that Friday in Hollywood Um, When he returns home a few days later, his life would be changed forever. Uh, According to James, my father put me in a cab at the depot and waited for a bus back to LA. The cab dropped me at my house. I saw three black and white police cars. I saw my neighbor, Mrs. Kritsky, on the sidewalk. I saw four plainclothes cops and instinctively recognized them as such. Mrs. Crixie said, that's the boy. A cop took me aside. Son, your mother's been killed. James said when he heard that, he instantly knew that that she had been murdered. Like that was his first instinct. Not that she like had a heart attack. Right. Or got hit by a car or whatever. Okay. So backing up a little now, um, around 10 a.m. on the morning of June 22nd, police received a phone call. A woman's body was found by a group of little leaguers. It was dumped on the road by the Arroyo High School baseball field where they were going to practice. El Monte police arrived on the scene to find a Caucasian woman about 40 years old lying in an ivy patch just off the curb of the road. She was wearing a sleeveless, light and dark blue dress with a matching coat, which was strewn across her lower body. One stocking was pulled all the way down and kind of crumpled up on one of her ankles. Her arms were covered with bug bites, her tongue protruding from her face, which was also, I mean, from her mouth and her face was bruised. Her bra was undone and pulled up a Above her breast, a nylon stocking and a cord were knotted around her neck. She had no underwear on and her dress was pulled all the way up to her waist. She had an asphalt drag mark on her left hip and a broken pearl necklace was found sort of nearby with pearls sort of scattered everywhere. They estimated that she had been dead 10 to 12 hours. The LA coroner was called um, as well as homicide detectives at that point because it was clearly a homicide. Yeah, Um, The crime scene... I mean, it wasn't being investigated as a crime scene now. Picks were being taken. The police were already describing it as a classic late night body dump. Not only were they gathering evidence, but detectives were also gathering information about her because she had no ID on her and they had to somehow find out who she was. So they were going to put out, I guess, like a radio call announcing what she looked like, what she was wearing, etc. 
The news is out now about this unknown victim. And finally, a woman named Anna Cricky calls in and says that the woman found fits the description of her tenant, Jean Alroy. A detective is sent to interview her. She claims that Jean had left her home. I think she lived in a bungalow in yeah. the back of a main house. Like it was that kind of rental. Uh, Jean left around 8 p.m. the night before and had not returned. The detective describes the dress, and Anna confirms that that sounds like what was Jean's favorite outfit. He also describes an unusual detail. The victim had a missing nipple and scar tissue on the surrounding areola. Anna confirms that she had been shown that scar before. Um, now, James will later in the book, he describes that he also saw his mom's missing nipple as a child. Whoa. She said that it had become infected when she was nursing him and it had to be removed. Okay. That's horrible. That's awful. Um, I, when I first heard that description, when they find the body, that was like something they noticed. I was like, oh my God, was her nipple cut off? Like, right. but it actually was just a random, weird coincidence. I mean, something that had happened before. It was but completely it was a- unrelated. Although it seems like a sex crime or a sex murder crime yeah. type of injury, right? But it also, uh, that's quite an identifying mark yes. to have. It's not like a tooth missing or something. Like, right. So, I mean, at that point, they pretty much were like, this is this our is, girl. Like, right. This is, the, this is the person. So, and this woman also has a very description, very different description of Jean than her ex does. She says that Anna went out very occasionally. Um, she wasn't much of a drinker. She didn't have boyfriends over and that, uh, she really, it was important for her to set a good example for her son, which is like complete opposite of what Armand would say about her. I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between. Like, yeah, I'm um, sure the dad elaborated or embellished a lot. And he, he was probably angry at her yeah. and wanted to like, you know, insult her. At some point, Anna and her husband go to the morgue and formally ID the body as Jean Alroy. Now, the next break in the case is when detectives find Jean's car parked behind a bar called the Desert Inn, which is two miles from the dump site and one mile from her home. The only unusual thing that they found in the car was a half dozen empty beer cans like in a bag. I can't remember if it was the front or back seat. The cops interview people at the bar who were there at that time, which is early evening, like five, and no one there recognized her or had any, you know, memory of seeing her the night before. The Desert Inn was pretty much the most high-class place in El Monte. Uh, and guess who played there, Rachel? Who? <laughs> Spade Cooley. At no. some point, yeah, he played at this at this bar. Wow. And it's possible, wasn't he, didn't he have something going on in the desert? Uh, like he, at some point? I can't remember. Did he go to Palm Springs? Was I thought he him? had something in the desert where he was going to create a, a theme park or something. I can't remember. Yeah, something Anyways, like that. so that's how high class it was. At 6.30 p.m., that's when James and his dad have arrived, or James has arrived. The dad now comes, and they are both being interviewed by police. James was described as unemotional upon hearing the news. According to James, the yard was full of policemen in uniforms and plainclothesmen. I wasn't afraid, but I was anxious. I was apprehensive. People were surprised that I wasn't more overtly emotional right after I got the news that my mother had been murdered. I think they expected me to cry or carry on or display some kind of overly, like, overt histrionics, but I took the news internally. The interview with Armand, he pretty much said his wife um, was really private about her life. Uh, she didn't want because she didn't want to be declared an unfit mother. So he didn't really know a lot of details about her personal life, but he really didn't paint a pretty picture of her to the detectives. He had an airtight alibi as he and his son did a lot of things that weekend. They were out and about like he always really tried to make it like the best weekend ever. Right. Including having lunch at Clifton's Cafeteria, which existed back then. You should check it out now because they completely redid it. Yeah. I went I went before they redid it and it was like a real old school cafeteria yeah. with like kind of gross food, but I still ate it. Um, <laughs> duh. Duh. Uh, but now it's like completely hipstery. Totally. Whatever. Is, yeah. The dad was really not ever considered a suspect because he did have this airtight yeah. alibi, but obviously they're going to interview him. James and Armand did bring up that she had two boyfriends that they knew about. One was named Hank Hart, and he was described as a fat loser with one thumb by the dad. Oh. <laughs> His description, not mine. That's quite a description. Uh, yeah. And then there was a teacher that James said she had dated a few times. Um, and that was one of the things James tattled on to his dad. Like, okay. oh, she's dating this teacher. They went on a few dates. 
So neither of those guys, though, ended up being serious suspects. Detectives described the father and son as looking almost relieved when they were able to leave together. James described his joy at finally being able to live with his dad. Like, that was his reaction, wow. basically. Like, yay, like... I can live with dad now. I can live now. with dad now. And I feel like that is like... <sighs> That is like a, for me, like being a child who went through some seriously traumatic events, I remember always looking on that bright side. Yeah. Like it's borderline sociopathic, but it's like a survival technique. I don't, wouldn't call it sociopathic when you're it's something, a child though. necessarily. It would, it think it it's is like, like a survival. It's like disconnecting. It's disassociating. Yeah. Disassociating. Almost. Like, I'm not saying it's diagnosably sociopath, but there's like an element to it where you're like, I don't feel anything. You're protecting yourself. Yeah, you're protecting yourself. And you're like, well, now I can do this. Like, it's like trying to find that good aspect of like why your life is going to be better now. Do you know what I mean? So I I get it, even though it is it is horrible. I also think like everyone reacts to trauma so differently and that they're when people think, oh, it's strange they reacted that way to this thing. It's like we you never really know. Yeah, I never buy into those reaction things because I'm always like, I don't know. Like you you just don't know. You don't know until you're in that situation. Um, But I do think there is an element of when you're a kid, especially pretty young, like not a teenager yet, you really are sort of uh, a selfish creature. And I'm sure there's like a nature reason for that. Like yeah. you have to survive kind of thing. Um, so it is sort of interesting and sad because this does fuck him up, obviously. Now, police continue to interview people who worked at the Desert Inn Bar. They're obviously going at different times of the day and seeing, yeah. you know, who was there that night. And they finally get some eyewitnesses who said they did see a red-haired woman who would, um, they would eventually positively ID as Jean, talking to a man with um, a swarthy complexion and a blonde woman. Swarthy complexion. That's how he's described. Like, he is, in all the documents and everything, he's described as the swarthy complexioned man. Uh, now, with those eyewitness statements, police were able to reconstruct Jean's night a little bit, at least the early part. According to James, my mother went out drinking Saturday night. She was seen at the Desert Inn Bar in El Monte with a dark-haired white man and a blonde woman. My mother left the bar with the man around 10 p.m. A few men's names start coming up as the possible swarthy complexioned man. It's like very uh, fugitive, right? The right. one-armed man or right. something. One man's name that kept coming up in questioning was a man named Michael Whitaker. Detectives interview him. He was there that night and appeared to interact with Gene at some point, according to the witnesses. But he was literally fucking wasted that night. Like people remember him falling off his stool, like. Right. Being fucking drunk. So his memory is not the best because he was basically blackout drunk that night and total mess. Uh, he's eventually dropped as a suspect. Within the first 24 hours of her body being found, they were slowly painting a picture of her last night, but not really closer to solving who might have been the murderer. Not helping matters was that there was an, um, no real interest in this story. And... Uh, tips weren't coming in. Like part of the reason for that, that he explained several times in the book is that there was another murder that had just happened recently that was dominating the headlines. And that was the murder of Johnny Stompanato by Lana Turner's daughter had happened almost. The weird thing to me is that it had happened in April. This happened in June. And for some reason it was still like the dominant tabloid story, even though it hadn't just happened. I'm sure it was like the hearing. And then it was probably just a fucking gossip tabloid dominant story still. So that was sort of the big headline story. This was like a blip on the radar. Like like, who cares? Which I think happens a lot with murder cases. Uh, Certain cases get all the attention and then other ones just fall to the wayside. Um, so Jean is finally autopsied. Her blood alcohol was 0.08, so not particularly high. She wasn't like, you know, wasted. wasted. Yeah. Um, they discovered what appeared to be Mexican food in her stomach. She had meat, beans, and cheese. So they're like, well, that's her last meal. Um, this was important to detectives at the time because someone someone did describe the swarthy complexion man as possibly being of Mexican heritage. Now, I don't know <laughs> if at the time eating Mexican food was so uncommon for white people that that would have been like a clue for them. Like, oh, she must have been with a Mexican man because she ate 
beans and meat and cheese. Like that's so bizarre. That's so bizarre. But that was like a thing like, Oh, like what does this Mexican food mean? Like, cause, and the other aspect of it that they thought would be like a, a big clue was that, Oh, people would have noticed a white woman and a Mexican man eating Mexican food together. Well, she's also in Southern California. And- that's what I was surprised by. I was like, why would this be? Cause I'm like, we just had Mexican food. Right. We, we just like, ate it. And, uh, to me, it's like, that would not be shocking at all. Like, right. I guess at that time, maybe that was something that would have been something that people noticed. Now, it turns out most of the people do describe this guy as being white. So that was just like this one little false lead that they thought they had for a bit. Um, more people were giving tips about other men that they saw at the Desert Inn that night. There was a man named Johnny who was described as a lover boy. Um, it was that kind of thing like, oh, what about this guy? Like no one really had a strong clue. And apparently she talked to a lot of people that night. I mean, yeah. it's a Saturday night in a popular bar in El Monte. Who's not partying it up? Now, another man that got constantly brought up was a man named Tommy. And he was eventually found but had an airtight alibi. And other guys um, claimed that he wasn't the guy that they saw Gene with that night. So just a ton of dead ends at this point. Another promising witness was a woman named LaVon Chambers, uh, and she finally comes forward. She was a car hop who recalls serving the couple, and she even confirms the meat and bean order at this point, okay. which was basically uh, chili. Yeah. So it wasn't Mexican food. It just had beans, cheese, and meat. <laughs> um, so police had a sketch now of what the suspect looked like based on LaVon and some of the other guys on this guy that she was eating right. food with. Right. From her and other eyewitness descriptions of him, they kind of create this, uh, whatever sketch. Composite. Um, Jean is finally buried on July 1st and her son did not go to the funeral. He stayed home and watched TV. Wow. So he's really, uh, detaching here. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. On July 15th, a coroner's inquest is held, and Jean's cause of death was officially entered into the record as being caused by asphyxia due to strangulation by ligature and deemed a homicide caused by an unknown person at the time. The investigation would continue, but other crimes just started happening and taking hold. Tips stopped coming in, and the Elroy case basically stalls out. They had one more burst of interest in October of 1958, and that is when the Lonely Hearts killer, Glamour Girl killer, Harvey Glattman was arrested for the murder of three women. Did we talk about this case? No, maybe I'll do it. Uh, it's a case we have to cover. Week. Because, okay. Uh, yeah. I maybe I'll do, it, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. The week after next. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting case. I'm not yeah. going to really get into it because I know, well, I know we're going to cover it. Now I know you're going to I'm going to cover it in two weeks. We'll do it in two weeks. So he gets arrested for the murder of three women. And he, so obviously it's, co- it's coincidental enough that they, they're like, hey, maybe he did Jean right. too, right? It's the timing is right. She's like, you know, an attractive woman. Um, but he insists that he did not kill Jean. He takes a polygraph test and is whatever, found not to be lying. Police basically believe him and he is not a suspect in this case ever. But it is interesting that she's connected to so many yeah. weird uh, things. Uh, ultimately, the case goes cold. Here's a quote from James about this next section I'm going to get into. My mother's crime scene to me is all crime scenes. The crime scene to me is it's primal. It's almost Oedipal. The moment of the discovery of her body is in many ways the moment of my birth because it's the genesis of my detective's obsession with the murders that they ultimately become consumed by. A year after his mom's murder, James... James becomes obsessed with crime novels and especially obsessed with the murder of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. It shouldn't be any surprise that he is pretty fucked up after this uh, murder. Um, He doesn't, as far as I can tell, he didn't go to any therapy or anything to deal with this trauma. And partially that could be him like, hey, I'm moving on. Yeah, I get to live with dad. Like, I feel like it was just like moving forward instantly and never really focusing on this trauma. So he does become obsessed with murder. Like, and it's in particular, he kind of projects all his feelings on his mom on Elizabeth Short, basically. Um, He, at the age of 17, he suffers another devastating blow. His father dies. His father, by the way, was like 20 years older than the mom. Okay. So he was already like a much older, she's like 43 when she dies. So he was in his sixties. So by this point, you know, he's like almost 70, which is probably a more typical time to die at that period. James describes it as this. I went from bad to worse. I was no choir boy before that time, but boy, oh boy, things got worse. I drank, used drugs, broke into homes and stole things, drove around in stolen cars, shoplifted, did spurts at county jail um, from 1965 to 1977. My life was going nowhere and I wanted a real life. I hadn't been with a woman in years and I wanted to write. I wanted to write dark, evil, well-defined, perverted, powerful, compelling crime fiction. I knew I wouldn't be able to as long as I drank and used drugs. One of the creepy things that he did as a crime, by the way, is he would break into homes of school girl schoolgirls he had crushes on and he would steal their underwear. Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? That's awful. I mean, that's terrible. Um so after serving some time in jail, he gets pneumonia. Uh, he develops an abscess on his lung the size of a large man's fist. At that point, he stops drinking and begins working as a golf caddy while pursuing writing. He later said, caddying was good tax-free cash and allowed me to get home by 2 p.m. and write. I caddied right up to the sale of my fifth book. His first novel is published in 1982 and more than a dozen follow. Seeping between the lines was a dark legacy of his mother's rape and murder. Um, It bubbled to surface really when he publishes The Black Dahlia, which is his take on the 1947 murder of Elizabeth Short. I think it's kind of a semi-fictionalized account. It's not like a um, nonfiction book. And he dedicates this book to his mom, by the way. He says, it's as if Elizabeth Short became a stand-in for my mother. I wanted to feel the horror of my mother's death, and I used Elizabeth Short as a substitute. 
Now, The Black Dahlia is the first book in his L.A. Quartet. This is sort of what really made his name in crime fiction. Uh, these are all books set in L.A. from the 1940s to the late 1950s, and they are The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. And these are fiction books. Yeah, but they're all sort of based on a lot of thing. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? It's all sort of loosely based on things. Or inspired his own, by. Yeah, inspired yeah. by. So that really makes him a fucking literary star at that point. The next thing he does in 1994, which is two years after the last book was published in that L.A. quartet, he decides that he's finally going to focus on his mom's murder. Uh, he begins to pursue investigating the crime, as well as writing, writing the memoir that that I read called My Dark Places. In the prologue of the book, he says, your death defines my life. I want to take your secrets public. I want to burn down the distance between us. I want to give you breath. So he is basically reopening the case of his mom's unsolved murder. Uh, He has a detective, William Stoner, of the Los Angeles County uh, Sheriff's Department, who's going to kind of help him along this journey. And this guy arranges for Elroy to examine the official case file on his mom's murder. Um, The detective Stoner says this when he first met James. This was the first time I'd ever been asked by a member of the family of the victim to actually see crime scene photographs. I was very hesitant to show him those because they're very graphic. So I warned him. But of course, James was like, I want to see it all. Like He's fucking like... He's ready now. He's ready. Stoner, by the way, worked on another pretty infamous case that I feel like will also be something we cover at some point, and that is the Cotton Club murders. Oh, yeah. That was his big uh, case before uh, working with James. So... The physical evidence from the murder scene had been stored in a paper bag locked away for more than 30 years. Um, so James is actually holding this physical evidence wow. in his hands. He's holding the nylon stocking that was used to strangle his mom. Uh, he had her dress that oh my she God. was killed in. Like he's touching this silk for the first time. I mean, obviously this is like a visceral experience yeah. for him. He says, I started sweating. I started shaking. It was locked down, revved in, right on the edge of shell shock. Truly an awe-inspiring moment. And then he sees a face staring back from him in the file, and that is his mother's killer, the composite drawing that was done years before. Yeah. He, as I said before, he was called the swarthy man because of his dark hair and olive complexion. Detective Stoner um, helps James track down LaVon Chambers. Remember the, the car She's hop? The car hop. Uh, and they interview her. I think she's in Reno at the time. So they find her. Like, How this, old is she now? She, she must be like, this is like the biggest part. Of, the biggest problem with this reopening is most of these people are fucking dead. Right. She's like, most of the people they do end up finding are like literally their eighties. Right. So they just happen to still be alive even though they're really old. So she actually says to them, she's like, I've always like remembered all the details and I always practice it in my head Wow! thinking that like if I ever have to remember I don't want to forget if they need me so she has constantly throughout her life according to her always like re-remembered so she doesn't forget Uh, so she does remember a lot she tells some of the things she tells them in the interview she had this beautiful dress pearls around her neck her hair was done beautifully that's what made me remember her so well because she was so beautiful and she had that dress on she looked very prim and proper she was very pleasant and he had no accent he didn't talk with even a southern drawl he just spoke very normally like you'd expect an average californian to talk that was earlier in the night now the the new information they found was that they were there earlier, then went to the desert end. And after they left the desert end, they drove back to the car hop or the, the drive through or to get more food to get more food, which was, like, I relate. Look, <laughs> I was I like, relate yeah, you that. get hungry. If you have some drinks, you're like, I'm fucking still hungry. <laughs> Let's go back to that car. I mean, hop. You know what? Before you were drunk, you were probably trying to be ladylike, <laughs> not eat as much. And then after you have a few, you're like, well, I'm fucking hungry. <laughs> we know how it works. According to Levon, I guess the blonde woman was with them when they initially came, and then she wasn't with them when they came back. This time, she was not as neat and prim as she was when I waited on them the first time. She looked like she had been necking or fooling around. Her dress and her hair were kind of messed up, but they didn't seem overly friendly together. He wasn't saying anything. He was just too quiet. So shortly before 3 a.m., Jean and the suspect leave the drive-in. 
Now, another piece of evidence revealed to James during this investigation was that his mom had her period that night and a tampon was found inside of her during the autopsy. That and the fact that the man was bored on the second visit led James to to come up with a new theory. His theory was that they went back to Stan's drive-in around 2.15 a.m. The man was bored. They had just had sex and he wanted to ditch his this desperate woman and get on with his life. So he's, his theory is that he already had fucked her. They went back and he's like, ugh, like how can I ever get rid of this woman? Then something happened between them that caused this combustible like fight uh, because the mom wanted more. Where more does her sex. period fit in? I don't know why, he, why the period led him to that. I think because... Well, there's more information. I'll get to it. More sex or more male attention. The promise of a next time with flowers and like a ritzier venue. He trusted his new theory. It made him feel like this big wave of love for his mom. I was her son. I was hooked on more also as bad as she was. Like he, he's taking it as like, oh, this mom, this horny mom. Like I relate to her now because I also had these desires for more sex and drugs. And like, so this is like actually causing him to relate to her, him more. And I think that. I think that he thought that they didn't really have sex because of the period, but she was like horny and wanted more. And, but the man was frustrated because he's like, well, who cares? I can't fuck. Like, I think that was his sort of initial theory that the period stopped them from actually penetrating, but she wanted more affection and like to do everything else, I guess, but he wasn't getting off. He, he finds this to be like this exhilarating theory for some reason. And, and it sort of builds this like bridge between them and his mind. Now, Stoner completely disregards this theory. He thinks it's complete fucking crap. Right. Stoner's theory is this. He says the swarthy man wanted pussy. And that's James's word, by the way. This is how he talks about his mother. <laughs> Jean was menstruating and refused to give it up. They were necking and fondling. The swarthy man wanted more. Jean wanted to cool him down. She said, let's go back to Stan's drive-in. So that's when they drove back to Stan's drive-in and saw LaVon Chambers. Um, Jean was half drunk and lighthearted, whereas the swarthy man was horny and pissed off. He knew the secluded road by Arroyo High School. They finished their food and the swarthy man suggests that they drive gene says okay they drive um from the the drive-in and then when he gets to the location by the high school and this is according to james by the way he demanded some cunt oh why does he wait, talk this what? way uh first of all i would uh i feel like it's like you don't have to always be a hard-boiled detective when you're talking about your mom <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that's not even hardball detective. I, I don't, don't know, know what, what that the, is. Yeah, that's not even. We wouldn't even say Demanded that. Demanded some cunt. Oh. Jesus fucking Christ, James. So Gene says no at that point. They get into a fight, and the swarthy man hits Gene in the head five or six times. He uses his fist or a small metal tool he might have had in the car. Gene is unconscious, and the swarthy man rapes her. Now, lubrication explained the absence of vaginal abrasions um and and <laughs> this guy theorizes that because they had necked and fondled a while back uh gene had been turned on when this happened uh james writes sorry she was still wet like well seriously james I, like, must you describe everything in detail well, like she was also on her period well yeah that's what i thought so i was like these men don't know how to do anything yeah uh the swarthy man made a smooth penetration. The rape itself was clumsy and frenzied though. Like, I guess they're basically saying there was no abrasions like with a rape, but uh, the coroner, like I said before, found the tampon, which was pushed all the way to the rear of her vagina. Yeah. So he raped her with a tampon in and basically pushed it all the way up. Right. She was pretty much unconscious. They believe when this happened. And then once he, you know, raped her, he panicked because he's now stuck with this unconscious woman that he just raped. I think they also think that he was in her car. Mm-hmm. So maybe he brought it back to the bar after this was happened. Right. So he has her car. Uh, she obviously could ID him and he would be charged with rape. And that's when he decides to kill her. He had, they theorized that he had the sash cord in his car, the the other cord that was around her besides the, um, the stocking, uh, that he strangled her with that. The cord broke and that's when he picked up her stocking and used that to finish the job. Uh, he hauls her body out of the car, dumps it on the um, ivy patch by the high school and then leaves the area bringing the car back to the desert inn. James says that um, as Stoner is telling him this theory, he 
shuts his eyes and replays the whole uh, reconstruction in a graphic detail in his head as he's telling it and that he starts shaking and that's where that chapter ends. Stoner turns off the AC because James is obviously having a fucking huge breakdown here yeah. in this story. I mean, it's, it's awful. So their investigation eventually leads them to another mor- murder, according to Elroy at this point. Um, this is an unsolved file that, according to Stoner, blew his fucking mind. The date of the murder was one twenty three fifty nine, so that's about half a year after mm-hmm. Jean. The victim's name was um, Bobby Long. She was beaten, she was strangled with a nylon stocking, and she was dunk- dumped on a road in La Puente, which is four miles from El Monte. That is so similar. Yeah. Uh, and there's this is like a whole chapter or a few chapters on this this case because they literally go down like a huge rabbit hole in this case thinking it's connected to Jean. Eventually they can't really find a connection, but there are a lot of similarities. Like yeah. you're looking at the case and they have some other cases that they bring up, like other cold cases that seem similar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of depressing to think like women are just murdered and no one ever finds out what happened to yeah. them. And maybe they're connected, maybe they're one guy, or maybe it's just a lot of sad fucking assholes. assholes. Like, so... That's like an interesting chapter, but I just don't want to get into all the details of that case since it's kind of fruitless. As I mentioned earlier, part of the problem is that most of the witnesses are either really old with shitty memories Mm -hmm. because they're old or dead. Like they just don't have any luck there. Both of them realize that the key is really this blonde woman and no one knows who she is or can find her. Like she is the one who can identify who this guy is and was there that night with those people specifically, but no one ever knows no one ever has identified her and ever, ever. So no one knows who she is, even though she's clearly the one who can probably solve the case. Right. So they eventually do like a kind of TV interview. And at that point, a ton of tips start rolling in. Really? Yeah. Um, I mean, none of them lead anything anywhere. And obviously in this day and age, everyone's like, Oh, calling from Ohio. Like, you know what I mean? Like there is an element of people want to be involved in something and they just start whatever. So it's like not, none of the tips, you know, that restaurant and the chili was great. <laughs> yeah. It's just like all these people wanting to yeah. kind of whatever. I think that's pretty common, but they're always hopeful that maybe something will turn mm-hmm. up. According to James, he says, I know myself well enough to state that I will never stop looking. I will not let this end. I will not betray her or abandon her again. Like he, they basically have no choice but to give up, but they just don't have anything to go on. And yeah. they, they do this for like a year and a half. They're wow. like investigating this murder again, which is probably longer than they did the first time. Yeah. Even though they don't find the killer during this thing. I think the important thing here is like for James, it's like ultimately was not necessarily about finding the killer, but it was about finding his mom and like yeah. reconnecting to her. Like that was really the important thing. And that's right. why I really like this book because it's like finding out who did it isn't really the interesting part in a way. It's like him discovering his mom as this human being that yeah. he's rejected his whole life. He goes to very dark places as the title indicates. Like he goes back to where her body was found it is this thing for him and the writing is very well done, even though I've, I mocked some of the dirtier things because it does seem a little unnecessary. He says in the book, my mother was a richly ambiguous, complex, tormented woman. She liked liquor, early times bourbon, L&M cigarettes, and cheap men. She also liked Brahms symphonies. She also sent me to church, made me do my homework and fought very hard to keep me from becoming a weak man, the, the weak man she married. Stoner says of James, over the last two years, I've been able to experience a grown man who fell in love with his mother for the first time as an adult, and it was an emotional experience for both of us. Elroy and Stoner are still running down leads, and Elroy says that they will never stop looking. He tried very hard in the course of the investigation to take himself back to that time in 1958, like when Mm -hmm. he was a kid, to kind of just start all over again with his mom. I was looking to claim my mother. I was looking to determine how I derived from her. I found out those things. The capture of my mother was more important than the capture of her killer ever could have been. And that's how he basically ends the book. Wow. So it's still an unsolved case. Yeah. Um, obviously that was, that book came out in 1996. So that's pretty long time ago, yeah. over 20 plus years ago. And I didn't see any like new updates. Right. Cause at this point, everyone is dead. Every, right, who was right. like uh, alive at that point. Well, who was that age and alive? Yeah, like an adult witness in the the late fifties is dead. It's a really sad book. That's really sad. 
but he's a, he's a fucking interesting guy, by the way. I'm not getting into a lot of his stuff as an adult, except for the mom stuff. But like he definitely, even though he's had this sort of breakthrough with his mom, maybe he's a damaged fucking person and he's made a life for himself, which is great. Right. But it's like, you know how you kind of make things work, but those wires are still not all like connected. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I feel like I probably have a little of that too. Not as extreme, but like I've managed to make things work and it's like, it'll be hard. It would be harder to undo everything (laughs) than it would to just be like to make this work. Like at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think he's very interesting. I think you should check out his books, especially this memoir. It's very good and it's a fast read. Like you'll blow through it because it's just sort of very compelling. But yeah, that's the story. Wow. That was a good, that was really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. I feel like I fucked up the period story, but I wasn't quite sure what he was talking about either. Like he was so blown away with his theory (laughs) that until you questioned it, I was like, oh yeah, wait, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) He believed it though. Like that was his, he thought he was onto something, but But it's like, it's interesting to me because it's like, I don't think he made the logical fallacy priority because to him it's like that's like me right i'm also a desperate person and she probably annoyed someone with her desperation and they fucking killed her and it's like you can imagine someone who had what he had always worrying about coming off desperate or needy yeah and wanting to make sure that no one ever thought that he needed them do you know what i mean like he was projecting his own stuff onto his mom and i feel like he really wanted to connect to her so he was always trying to find that right ultimately for me it's like oakham's razor it's like yeah, there are men who uh, rape and kill women because that's what they do. Right. You know, that's the kind yeah. of man. They, it's more on the man, not on And her. he's had some obviously n- not great relationships in his life with women. Interesting. So, uh, I mean, I, yeah, it definitely makes sense. I'm not saying he's a, an abuser or anything like that, but he's had, he's made bad choices. He's struggled. Or he's been in codependent relationships, uh, et cetera. Um, he also had some weird things I read. It might have been like on his Wikipedia page, just like how he always tries to fuck with people too. He definitely has a little bit of that. Um, like he's a prank guy, not a prank guy, but almost like a saying things that are like edge lordy. <laughs> oh man, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not like a like a teenager kind of way, right. but definitely kind of. Prov- I'm on the. I'm pushing this to the he's edge. He's like provocative yeah. in that way. Uh, so it's like. Another, but that's also kind of a form of I need attention yeah. and love. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think he's a bad guy. No. But uh, definitely an interesting person. I wish we could get him on the show. <laughs> oh my God, James, if you're listening, please come on the show. Text um, us. Yeah. <laughs> you know the. You know our numbers. <laughs> what? It's like the old fashioned phone number. Right. Wilcox 392. <laughs> that's my cell phone number. Right. Um, okay. So you know about the Patreon. Yeah. Also, we have um, an Instagram. You can check out. We'll probably post some pictures there from this week's episode mm-hmm. for sure. We have a lot of other pictures there. And you can join our Facebook group at Hollywood Crime Scene Friends where people will be talking about this case and other cases and other things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 